Alright, welcome, 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 welcome to the Pulsing Cinema. The, uh, the recording that I'm about to play is a, is a vintage archival recording way back from 2014. <laughs> it's a recording from uh, April 30th, 2014 at the Alamo Drafthouse Weird Wednesday. It's a showing of the infamous... Uh, Ron Ormond, Estes Perkle film, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Film directed by uh, Ron Ormond, previously an exploitation grindhouse type of filmmaker who turned religious filmmaker, making these religious films with primarily with uh, this minister, Estes Perkle. And uh, If Footmen Tire You was a famous sermon that Estes Perkle gave. It was an anti communist sermon about how communism, the the godless communists, were going to take over. He went all around in Mississippi and the South and did this famous sermon and put it on a record and then made a movie about it with this guy, Ron Ormond. And he made a few movies with with Ron Ormond. He made a film called The Burning Hell about uh, the, the, the nightmares and tortures of if you're not saved, you're going to hell... Uh, he made a movie called The Grim Reaper about the dangers of psychics. He made a movie called The Believer's Heaven, which is all about heaven and about the exact geometry of heaven and how you get there and where you go. It's a very, it's a very bizarre, it's one of the most, it's one of the strangest films ever made. I mean, the fact that, you know, people aren't aware of that more is, is, is even stranger. But uh, there was a, there's been film prints of uh, the, the Burning Hell and, and Footman Tire You rolling around for a while. And uh, the Alamo Drafthouse, as I said, April 30th, 2014, this guy was able to get a 16 millimeter print and show it before the audience. And so uh, the, the, uh, the recording starts off with a little bit of uh, intro with the film, the guy who brought the print there, uh, the guy interviewing the guy, the, the host of Weird Wednesday was Laird Jimenez. And Laird is, uh, is emceeing, uh, masterfully emceeing the event, asking him all these questions. And then the event ends with a Q&A with Tim Ormond. Tim Ormond was Ron Ormond's son, and he acted in the films. In fact, in, in uh, he acted in Burning Hell. He played Tim, uh, oddly enough. <laughs> he played Tim. He's most well-known in The Burning Hell. Uh, he had, His friend had more living to do, and uh, but he's in um, he's in uh, Footman as well. So it was a family filmmaking scene. It was Ron Ormond and his wife and his son, and Tim really loves his father and loves his family, and it really comes through. And he's a real he's a real nice guy. He's done a lot of podcasts. He's done a lot of shows. And uh, if Footmen Tire You is a I, I, these Estes Perkle films, Footmen and The Grim Reaper and uh, Burning Hell, definitely, they fall into this genre of film, kind of loose genre of independent films called Godsploitation. And they started out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s with just making these, these little independent filmmakers, often ministers, preachers, making these films themselves, financing it independently, and then going to churches from... Uh, from church to church, showing these films and people, and often these films are are scare films. They're about you know the sinners go to hell, and they show the they're like horror films. They're very, I mean, uh, Foot Footman Tire is a very violent film. There's lots of scenes with children being murdered and and all kinds of debauchery, people being beheaded, children being beheaded. In fact, there's a scene where a child, a child who was actually played by Estes Perkle's own son, is uh, is beheaded. And uh, throughout the 70s, there was the Thief in the Night series. In the 80s, uh, a lot of films came on VHS, independent VHS releases. The 16 millimeter kind of was replaced by home video. And in the 90s and 2000s, you've got you know, Left Behind and The Omega Code and, and so many films which are not as goofy and funny as the early films, which are more shock films, more, you know, they come out of like the, like the Ron Ormond, Dave Friedman, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis type of, of, of filmmaker, shock filmmaker who were making like, 
you know, live baby birth films, you know, Mom and Dad, Reefer Madness. But then these guys were also involved in you know, religious exploitation as well. Religious, you know, God-sploitation, you'd call it. It's a, it's a weird genre of film, but uh, if Footman Tire You is a great place to start because it, it ticks a lot of the boxes. It rails against pretty much any kind of uh, modern thing. It rails against uh, uh, secularism and sex education and dance halls. What begins in the dance hall ends in the bedroom. All kinds of things. It's a great movie to watch, and you can actually watch it online now. It's been available for years in bootleg, horrible VHS copies. But Nicholas Winding Refn did a 2K scan of um, presumably a 16mm print. And it is on Nicholas Winding Refn's website, buynwr.com. It's in the, the link to it is in the, going to be in the show notes at pulsingcinema.com for this episode. So if you want to watch it, you can watch it for free at buynwr.com. Who knows if it may be released in the future in Blu-ray, what will happen to it. It's going to start off, as I said, with a little bit of a uh, intro, uh, talking, the guy's going to talk about how he got possession of this 16 millimeter print. And then uh, it will go into a Q&A after the film with Tim Ormond. Uh, I've never, I've never played this uh, audio anywhere else. hasn't been on on YouTube. hasn't been uh, uh, anywhere. Uh, the The footage was very dark and and difficult to make out. So the audio, the audio is not perfect either. It was in the smaller room. Uh, it was uh, at the Almo Draft House. It was a downtown on Sixth Street. Uh, it was uh, at the at the Ritz. The big screen that 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 night was showing at ten o'clock. It was showing the newest Captain American film. I guess Captain America and Winter Soldier. That was showing at 10, but at 10.25 in the small room, in the small theater, it was if footmen tire you. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, listen and learn. Now, Brian, the world is only about 200 years old. This movie is almost that old. 6,000 years old. 200 years old. How did you find this print? Uh, I got this print from uh, Widow Perkle. And how did you first come into contact with Widow Perkle? Who is, who is Widow Perkle? Widow, Widow Perkle is the, uh, is the wife of the now deceased producer and star of this movie, If Women Tell You, tell you what, what Horses Do. His name is Estes Perkle. And um, he's the main creature in this movie. What was his deal? Why, why did he make movies? Yeah, why did Estes Perkle, what drove Estes Perkle to spread his message through this, the medium of cinema? Well, he was a preacher, and he, he, he wanted to scare people into uh, becoming Christians. <laughs> did it work? It worked um, with certain films, not so much with this one. <laughs> so we're talking about an extremely devout brother, Brother Estes Perkle. He made this movie... It showed in mostly churches across the South, torn around, and here we are, 30 years later, you're just a guy who likes gory horror movies, and you're into the movie, and how do you go about convincing them to sell you a print of this movie? Uh, the Essence Perkle Association, uh, for years, had a rule that uh, only Baptist churches were allowed to rent or purchase any of their films, so when I contacted Widow Purple, I had to slightly misrepresent myself. <laughs> That's a scene. <laughs> How did you misrepresent yourself? What did you tell her? I told her I was a Baptist. <laughs> Are you? Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this Baptist youth pastor acquired this print from Estes Purple's widow. It's on 16mm. We're going to watch it tonight. What else can you tell us about this movie, the production of it? Well, this movie is really interesting because the director of this movie, Ron Ormond, uh, had, before this movie was made, he had been known as the driving king of the South. He made movies like The Monster and the Stripper and Please Don't Touch Me. And then uh, he and his family were in a plane crash. They all survived, uh, and they became born-again Baptists. And uh, that's what uh, inspired Ron Ormond to begin making religious films. Uh, aesthetically, he was still an exploitation filmmaker, as you see if you've never seen this movie before. Um, there's, there's nothing soul-winning about it. It's, it's straight-up exploitation. Now, I've never been in a plane crash, but can I become a born-again Baptist also? If you believe really hard, 
to believe in the lie really, really hard. What lie? This is the truth. Everything you see in this movie is based on reality. This movie came from recorded events of what happened in communist countries. It's true. Everything in this film comes from events that happened in countries where communists took over. So you've been in touch with the, son, the, the director's son, who's going to join us if you haven't heard, by the way, after the movie, if you stick around for a question and answer period, where we can, we can ask him about his faith, we can ask him about the production of his Let's story. not ask him about his faith. Let's not ask him about <laughs> What do you know about the hormones? Tell us a little bit more, because we, can't ask, we, we won't have him for that long, so, so tell us a little bit more about the production of this. Well, there's some interesting things about this film. There's some weird gore scenes in this film, and, and I'll ask him about a couple of those. We don't want to spoil it too much. Yeah. Um, but an interesting fact is that uh, Ron Ormond uh, and his wife, Tim Ormond, who we're going to be talking to, his folks, Ron Ormond, the director, and, and his wife, June Ormond, who was kind of the co-producer of these movies, um, they had a long history of producing and directing movies going back to the late 40s. They've made um, movies like Untamed Mistress and Mesa of Lost Women, and they made Westerns with Lash Blue. And before that, they were... Um, a vaudeville couple that kind of toured around is like, almost like uh, Grayson Burns. They actually made a movie called Yes, Mr. Bones, which is about a child growing up in a retirement community for pistol show performers. <laughs> I don't know if I can recommend that movie or not with this crowd in Austin, Texas, but my folks in Georgia love that movie. <laughs> well, I think we should watch the movie because we're going to, after the movie, Brian. Brother Brian also, when he acquired the print, acquired some handbills that he's going to sell. We're going to do a Q&A with, with Mr. Tim Ormond. So right now, I'm going to uh, lead us in a little bit of a prayer. So Brother Brian, please take your seat. And uh, God bless I Love Video, whose dusty rows have given me a glimpse into the mind of Satan. God bless Ryan for protecting holy light onto our blessed celluloid. And God bless the servers who toil for our wicked desires. Tip them a burning hill. <laughs> this movie is only 55 minutes long, which is the exact amount of time it takes you to convince, to convince you that a communist invasion is imminent. I hope you take notes, but please don't talk. And we will see you after the show. Let's watch If Foot Men Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Hello. Hey, Tim. Hey, hey. So, am I actually live? You are. You're talking to about 70 people now. I definitely heard it all that I'm looking at. I don't know that I'm looking at the right theater on Google here, but uh, I got a picture of Alamo Draft House at the Ritz. Is that where you're at? That's us. <laughs> 320 East 6th Street. <laughs> okay, well, cool. Anyway, I got a picture there so I can kind of get a feel of the venue. So uh, how do you want to do this, Brian? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll start out asking you a couple questions, and then um, uh, we'll, after that, we'll see if anybody in the audience has some questions. Okay, cool. Okay, um... The first question that I probably ask you, I think, and that I know people ask about this movie is, how did that kid, how did you make that kid throw up? Did you give him, did they give him every cat, or? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting memory. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the thing about those southern churches is they have what's called dinner on the ground on Sundays, and that became, and that, that was our craft services, because that, that name wasn't even invented back then. So the church ladies basically fed us too much uh, every day, but it was good food. On this particular day, it was a very hot uh, summer day, as I remember, and they fed us, you know, everything because they were trying to impress chicken and potatoes and green beans and pie, and it just went on and on and on. It, you know, makes you want to go to sleep afterwards. Obviously, the little kid that you saw throw up would have uh, eaten uh, along with the rest of us, not knowing what was going to come up here shortly. And after that particular uh, lunchtime, and it was time to go back on the set, my dad put him in front of camera, and of course he had never um, acted before. 
Uh, and of course, obviously, in the picture, you see, you know, very few of the people have any acting experience. <laughs> and, and, and in particular, that's it. So obviously, he didn't know how to react to that. So I was actually on the camera. And I don't remember whether it's a wide shot, you cut to a close shot, but the close shot. It's a pretty tight shot when you actually throw Well, when he throws up, I'm on the camera, and my dad is standing next to him, basically pushing uh, and massaging his stomach to make him sick. <laughs> Uh, and uh, apparently it worked. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm glad that I was behind the camera and not in front of it. <laughs> the, the little kid actually, you know, there's nothing fake. As far as Epicac, I don't remember that happening, but just what I pretty much tell you. He probably ate too much for lunch, hot summer day, coupled that with the stress of the moment, and my dad, you know, kind of pressing on his stomach. <laughs> Better from reality TV. <laughs> exactly. Um, the other, uh, the, the the other really infamous shot from that movie is, of course, the little kid who gets decapitated at the end of that movie. And uh, some of the people in the audience might not know that that was Greg Purple, the son of Estes Purple, the main preacher. He, he saved the, the greatest line in the movie for his son Greg Purple. Um, Jesus, one day you died for me. Now I am willing to die. <laughs> that, that's pretty much it. But interesting uh, set of um, trivia around that particular thing is Cecil Scape, who played the commissar, who's, uh, who Greg Burkle is looking at and who later stomps his foot on the picture of Jesus, is the uh, father of Joe Scape, who was the producer or one of the producers on Achy Breaky Part with Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> So interesting, but as a matter of fact, Joe was on the was on the shoot, Joe's case. So we've got kind of a, a what is that, eight degrees of separation, three degrees of separation, um, anyway. But it, it was it was an interesting memory. But yeah, what's your question about Greg Purple? Oh, uh, anything um, you can remember about your father directing Greg Purple? I don't think, well, I remember that scene vividly, but I don't remember, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, he's wearing a wig, uh, or, or his hair is combed real strangely. No, I don't think there was much direction, per se, because I don't think, I think that Greg Purple was pretty much scared to death. I don't think he wanted to do it, necessarily. I think S is pretty much, you know, coerced him into doing so, and that, that you know, that probably in a nice way, if you want to look at it like that, a, a father saying, I want my son to portray this part, probably no malice intended, but I don't remember a lot of direction except, uh, you know, him trying to convey the thought. Uh, it, it's hard to give direction to someone who on the spur of the moment is asked to do something that he's never done before, and, and especially reading a line like that, which should have pathos, but uh, obviously it, it, it's not. Uh, so Tim, do you appear in this movie? Uh, yeah, briefly. Uh, uh, take this uh, gun and uh, shoot your mother, or uh, I will. <laughs> or, or, or words to that effect. Yeah, that, that was a uh, that was an interesting scene. Uh, that no, that was my not, that was not my first time in a movie. That was my uh, basically I was on the crew of this movie, and I think in that particular scene we just needed somebody to play that part, and my dad just said, oh, "Will you do it?" And of course, you know, I, unlike Greg Perkle, I had some experience, so I just sat in. But what's interesting about that is there was a, you have to put, you have to put this in the perspective of, there's a group of, a crew of, of uh, what's that? Oh, I thought we thought we lost it for a second. Oh, well, that, I may fade in and out. I do that in daily life. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, here's a group of Southern Baptist people conservative in the small town, and here's this crew who's formerly from Hollywood, so they would have looked at us with a, you know, a certain amount of, of reservation and things like that. But overall, in that particular set, Estes was in the back of the room, I can remember, and this was, to him anyway, a very important scene uh, to get the point across. The guy who played the soldier, his name is Gene McFall, a uh, great actor, uh, you know, became a, a good friend later, and then myself, and then the 
the person playing my mother, I believe, who's Laquita's case, which is Cecil's daughter. Uh, but anyway... Was it your mother or your sister? Was it your mother or your sister? Because she was the same actress in the scene where he comes in and he's like, uh, that's why I'm oh, here, to sleep with your wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the wife is the Laquita's case. Okay, the, the mother is, was probably just some local lady who I don't remember. I, I need to see a screenshot of that. Because you guys just saw this five minutes ago. I'm drawing from memories, you know, that are years old. But anyway, there was a lot of tension overall from, you know, everyone, not particularly on that scene, but just in general. Late at night, you know, long day. And at the end of that scene, of course, you're seeing it, and we say, you know, cut. But what really happened is I was staring at Gene, the soldier, and he's staring at me, and he says, you take this and shoot your mother, or whatever he says. And then we're waiting you know, for my dad to say, cut, but he doesn't. And he doesn't, and he doesn't, and he doesn't, and we're and finally after about 30 seconds of this intense stare, we just broke into laughter because it was to relieve the tension, and that upset Estes quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Estes didn't realize that he sometimes needs to relieve the tension on a shoot. Well, I, my dad explained to him later. Uh, I don't want to put S's down. Uh, you know, it, uh, our relationship, you know, didn't end good. But during that particular time, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was kind of an adventure. But yeah, you're 100% right. He didn't understand. He had, well, he had no clue as to what making the movie was or, you know, what a long day on the set was. Well, he seemed very uh, intense. I mean, were you intimidated to work with him? He, he didn't even like dancing. And, and, <laughs> I mean, I know you, you and your father were, were religious, but to me, he seems... Was it intimidating working with him? Uh, no, I wasn't religious at the time at all. I was just a typical 21-year-old uh, or however old I was, you know, full of himself, exploring life. That was a, a, a later time that I got into uh, Christianity. Uh, no, not intimidating, more cautious, because, you know, obviously my dad and uh, probably all of us would have discussed the situation walking in, and we would have said to each other, you know, they're going to be watching us, so be on your best behavior. And if they ask you, uh, you know, any questions about, you know, do you want to be saved and such, you know, just answer it truthfully, but realize that they're going to uh, uh, be asking you. But no, I wouldn't say intimidating. Uh, I mean, you, you, it's not, at the time, I probably wanted to keep my distance from it, but, uh, but no, no, I wouldn't say uh, intimidating. He, he's not in person uh, like he was there on the close-up where he's saying, uh, you know, you're going to be invaded by communism. <laughs> Um, Tim, uh, uh, I don't know if uh, everyone knows this, the, the movie that uh, Ron Ormond directed uh, previous to Footman, I, was it just before this that you made uh, The Exotic Ones? Uh, yeah, well not immediately before, uh, uh, in, in time-wise, but I guess uh, from a uh, standpoint of the film, yeah, that's correct. The Exotic Ones, also called The Monster and the Stripper, and one thing you told me was that uh, the set where The Monster and the Stripper was filmed, is where they later uh, filmed the show Crook and Chase. Yeah, that's correct. That's, that was kind of funny. Uh, well, actually, that's not the funny part. The funny part is actually go back in time. It was the television, radio, and film commission of the Methodist Church. And that was called Trafco for short. And that was where my dad edited a lot, White Lightning Road, which he got a very good deal. And so he had established a relationship with them. And they, he said, you know, hey, can we use your studio to shoot this? And they said yes, not realizing, you know, what we would be doing with the, uh, you know, strippers and all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever watch it in Flipton with an audience at a church? Oh, sure, of course. Well, not, well, yes, but uh, I guess the question you're asking me would become more prominent when we're talking about the burning hell, where I was really more into it. Footman, uh, I was just basically on the crew, making a film, and watching it, and I think I went to the premiere, and in fact, I know I went to the premiere, uh, which was in a high school gymnasium or something like that, and, you know, the packed house. And, but yeah, I was definitely there. And I guess your question, your secondary question is, what was the audience reaction? Absolutely. More so uh, on the Burning Hill than on Footman. 
on the burning hell, literally, I watched people in the middle of the film gump, jump up from the audience and run forward. On footmen, uh, I don't remember that happening. I do remember them it being kind of quiet at the, at the end. And then um, the way it would work, Estes had to kind of, you know, he just set the formula for the ending there where he would, whatever he said, you know, uh, I forget the exact wording, but the close shot of him saying, you know, come to Christ, and then the, uh, we fade to black. And then a local minister would take over and, you know, talk to the people locally. And that's what pretty much happened at that point. Um, I, I can't say it specifically I remember anything monumental happening at the premiere. I do remember, uh, you know, people going forward and, you know, people kneeling at the front and uh, a general feeling of, you know, we need to do something to get right with God, that type of thing. It's, it's pretty shocking even to this audience that's used to watching that kind of thing. So I was just curious, you know, people who don't normally see children's heads being cut off. But I imagine that's pretty shocking. Well, uh, the of course, you know, the secondary question there is why would we cut off a kid's head? And and my my, my the, the way that film actually happened. That's the primary question. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, it, it, of course, from a special effects standpoint, it was you know pretty cheesy. But as far as a shock value standpoint at the time, I, I understand your question. Uh, in essence, my dad's background came from exploitation. You know, when he would make a film, he would try to have those dramatic moments in it where people would like, oh, you know, they would kind of feel shocked. And I would tend to think, I was not involved with the, uh, the script writing on this. As I said, I was just, you know, fairly young at the time and didn't really, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Uh, so I probably was an active participant. But I, I got to give my dad credit for writing the script completely. Uh, I think he just wanted to have a dramatic moment, convinced Estes, or vice versa, Estes saying we had to have something dramatic. I don't remember how those two uh, parts played as far as cutting the head off. Uh, you know, whether Estes was responsible or my dad was responsible. That part I don't really remember. Uh, but I can say yes, it was shocking. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, wow, we need to do this great, you know, and uh, the head rolling down the hill. And I always remember seeing that shot later thinking, uh, it looks cheesy. I wish we'd done it better. <laughs> Tim, I actually have a recording of Estes uh, giving that same sermon uh, uh, from a couple years earlier in 1969. And, and he actually uh, describes in other countries people being forced to step on a picture of Jesus or, be, or they'd be decapitated. So that was part of his sermon uh, before you came into it. Okay, well then, then my dad would have just dramatized the scene. When Estes first came to us, he envisioned standing in front of a camera and just preaching the sermon that you heard to the camera, and that was it. And then my dad said, no, we've got to dramatize the scene, uh, or else it's just not, not going to work. So uh, obviously he would have taken Estes' message, uh, and just like you would a treatment on a, on a movie, and then turned it into a, a screenplay. That's how it would happen. He would have used his imagination. But I'm sure he would have uh, seen those parts, you know, uh, I will cut your head off, and he would have said, oh, great, that would be a great scene. <laughs> Does anyone in the audience have any questions? No one? Okay, we got one. I didn't hear that. Yeah, okay, but someone's got a question. Hold on. Um, I don't remember reading in the history books of communists invading America, so I guess this one was successful in stopping that. Um, <laughs> how, how successful was it in terms of playing uh, the church circuit? And is, is the goal here making money, or is it just to get the word out? Did you hear that? Yeah, basically. Uh, I don't think, uh, well now for us at the time, and realize when I, to me, at least to me, and I think probably to my dad, certainly to my mother, this was a film project. It would be like a, we were a hired gun, so to speak. There was nothing in our minds at the time, because as Brian said, we had made the Monster and Stripper, and probably we were just looking for a project. And I mean, there's a lot of ancillary things which, which Brian can tell you that, that comes into this, which I won't go into, airplane crashes and all that. Uh, but in essence, we were just looking for a project, and this came to us uh, either providentially or by accident. And we just wanted to make it good. Now, as far as the money part of it, I don't think so at that particular point in time. It ended up being fairly successful, and then that led to the burning hell, which was then financially successful. But I think that, you know, Estes probably was a 
bit of a, I, you know, I don't want to basically go on record as calling him a megalomaniac, but uh, I would think he, I, I would think he, he was a radio, he was a preacher, he was an evangelist, he was a radio preacher, so I think that a film was just a natural extension of uh, his ministry. I don't think he had any understanding going into this project of what the reach would be. Um, I, I'm not sure if part of that question was about how successful it was as a soul winner, but um, uh, maybe describe uh, the success of this film and the other two films in terms of uh, soul winning around the world. Well, now, of course, you know, there's many interpretations of soul winning, uh, and I'm not going to get into a religious uh, conversation, but let's just say from a numbers standpoint, they, they and I cannot substantiate this because this, the, the way it happened, let's talk about the Burning Hell film after this, because I don't remember the stats on Footman. Footman was kind of like the lead-in project, uh, so to speak. The Burning Hell was well over a million people uh, had made commitments to Christ, and you can interpret that you know any way you want. They might have rededicated their lives. They might have accepted Christ as their Savior. They went forward and they made a decision for Christ. And those numbers were substantiated by the fact that uh, films were distributed mainly by local preachers. I mean, we distributed, Estes distributed, but there were also a multitude of film evangelists who were lay preachers who would go from church to church and with a 16 millimeter projector, I don't know what you guys are using, but basically a similar type situation, but you know, scaled down. They would show the film and at the end then they would, uh, either them or the minister would give the invitation and they'd take an offering and then uh, Estes would say, well, how many people, you know, what happened? How many people got saved, whatever? And they would send in a, and then that was later turned into kind of a report where it was like the proceeds were X amount of dollars and the number of souls saved were, you know, five or 10 or 20 or whatever happened. They, they were still making people uh, fill out those reports in 2008. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's news to me, but doesn't surprise me. Are there any other questions from the audience? Well, thank you very much, Tim. It's been a, a blast watching this movie with a crowd. And thank you for joining us today. You're, you're in uh, Tennessee? I'm in, uh, you know, outside of Nashville. And uh, I'm a night owl. I've been my entire life. So, uh, as I told Brian, if, you, if this was happening at 7 a.m., you know, I doubt that you'd have got me. But as far as like 1130, it's perfect. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I guess that's it then. Brian will be in touch. <laughs> yep, thanks. Thanks a lot, Tim. That's it. Okay, all right. Good night, all. Talk to you later. Oh man, it, it's it sounds fun because it was fun. That listening to the old Alamo Drafthouse Q and A's that I recorded, it's very nostalgic. I don't do it very often. Every once in a while, I'll um, I'll go into YouTube. I have, Pulsing Cinema has a pretty large YouTube channel, and a, I have a lot of uh, Alamo Drafthouse Q and A's. I've uh, I recorded a lot of everything from uh, Christina Lindbergh to Gary Kent. Alex Winter and Freaked. Uh, I've I've just got so many uh, non-obscure and obscure uh, people. I Frederick Fidel, the director of Axe. I've got so many Q and A's on uh, on my Pulsing Cinema site. If you want to check them out, and the links at pulsingcinema.com, you can uh, check out my YouTube link. But it, they just don't do those type of Q and A's at the Alamo anymore. Right now, the Alamo's closed, but uh, I mean. It's really the Q, the last really great Q&A that I went to was Christina Lindbergh back in 2017, to be honest. After that, it's just they've, they've been playing it safe. And hopefully, if the Alamo Drafthouse opens back up, they can kind of stop playing it safe and uh, they, can, they can get a little bit of the fun back into it. Speaking of fun, I, I uh, and speaking of podcasts, um, I... Um, I don't hear people do this very frequently in podcasts. I'd like to just really quickly talk about some of my favorite podcast picks because I love listening to podcasts and a lot of podcasts are kind of disposable. You know, you, you listen to them and go in, in one ear, out the other. A lot of Joe Rogan podcasts, a lot of whatever podcast, you know, you listen to them, they're fun. They, you know, you might take something from, but you know, 
But I love movie pod, podcasts about movies. I love podcasts uh, about horror movies and cult movies. I, I just wanted to kind of talk about just a few podcasts that I think you should listen to. And if, maybe you've already listened to them, but uh, a few picks, specifically specific shows. I'm going to talk about specific shows, but of course, the 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 overall podcast itself is worthy of listening to, but I'm going to highlight specific shows. One specific show I think you should check out is from this podcast called uh, Profondo Cinema. Bunch of bunch of guys who are uh, hardcore Sam Raimi fans or hardcore John Carpenter fans, and they are hardcore, hardcore, hardcore. They are hardcore George Romero fans. And this, this podcast, uh, they've been going since like 2011. So they've been going almost 10 years right now. And uh, they've done a lot of interviews with people who've worked on George Romero films. One of their best podcasts, and it's such a great overview of George Romero, is they did an interview with Michael Gornick, the, the cinematographer who shot Creepshow, shot Dawn of the Dead. He's, he, he was, it was a, such a fixture in the 70s Romero, George Romero crew. And he also, he did a lot of odd jobs too. He worked, he did sound editing on, uh, on Dawn of the Dead. He, 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 he picked out the audio cues, the library music from Dawn of the Dead. He worked on, with George Romero and Rubenstein when they were doing those, uh, network television, uh, sports specials. He shot those. And this interview that he gives with Profondo Rosso as an overview of his his career, his career with George Romero, the 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 fallout that they had in the eighties with George Romero, with Tales from the Dark Side, where George Romero wanted to break off from Rubenstein and and uh, and the whole idea of Tales from the Dark Side was to do an East Coast New York based show where they could keep working. George Romero one kind of wanted to. He kind of wanted uh, Gornick to break off with him, but Gornick wanted to stay and develop himself as a director, develop himself as a filmmaker, because Gornick thought he was going to be working with George Romero for the rest of his life. I mean, it was a lifelong crew type of thing. I mean, and the kind of dissolution of that. It's a it's a great it's a great overview. He t- also I I didn't know how close George Romero was to directing Pet Cemetery. Like really close, like according to Gornick, he was scouting locations on Pet Cemetery, and he was going to shoot. He was going to shoot Pet Cemetery with George Romero, but they, but they, uh, it was a, there's a big documentary on Pet Cemetery that recently came out, and they, and the 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 eighty eight was eighty eight eighty nine Mary Lambert film, eventually directed by Mary Lambert. But uh, Michael Gornick said George Romero was really close to directing if the studio didn't believe he could shoot this film. He could do it, and Michael Gornick. The Michael Gornick actually has a credit on on the finished Pet Cemetery. He's he's a location scout. He he has just like one lone credit, and in the disappointment that he he even even now. Well, the 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 interview was from two thousand thirteen. Even in two thousand thirteen, Gornick was sad that he couldn't shoot the film. If you love Michael Gornick, if you love George Romero, they have a lot of episodes. They interview Jeannie Jeffries, who was makeup on Donna Dead. They interview, and the guys also have another another podcast called WGON Radio, where I think they interview John Amplis. They interview a bunch of other people uh, on that other show, WGON Radio is kind of their newer show, but it's still at TalkShoe.com. The links to this pod, all these podcasts I'm going to talk about, by the way, they're all in the show notes at PulsingCinema.com. So that's really great. The projection booth. I got to talk about the projection booth. I love his interviews. I he, he's he's one of the he was one of the best podcast interviewers I I've ever I've ever heard. His he he inspired me to kind of restart the Pulsing Cinema because I started the Pulsing Cinema this this podcast back in. 2005. And I kind of ebbed and flowed and it was kind of a little bit dead by 2011, 2012. And he inspired me to, uh, to kind of restart it and do interviews and stuff. And, uh, I hope to have more interviews I've done. I, 
in about uh, around 2011, I, I started doing a lot of interviews and I have some of them up, but uh, I'd like to do more. There's so many great episodes of the projection booth to, to point out. And the guy has a work ethic. He'll produce sometimes two or three podcasts in a, in a month, sometimes in a week. It's a lot of material to, to go over. And I mean, I, I love when I get a new episode of the projection booth, but I think some of the older episodes of the projection booth, to me, I like the older episodes when they had longer uh, cast and crew interviews and they had... Mike had a um, had one co-host. They had a set co-host for the past few years. They've uh, the the show has had kind of a a, a group of rotating co-hosts, two co-hosts, three co-hosts, sometimes three or four co-hosts in one show, and it gets to be a little bit of a crowd. I always loved it was two 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 hosts, Mike White and a co-host, very succinct direct opening segments and then on to the interviews and then a closer. Uh, but some of the later episodes are, are still great. Uh, one, a couple of episodes I have to point out that blew my socks off. Uh, they did, he, he did an episode on Electric Light and Blue where he interviewed some of the writers and producers involved with it. Great. Oh man, great, great, great story about how Electric Light and Blue got got taken over by uh, the impresario who's behind Chicago and then Robert Blake, who's crazy. And the whole cloud of craziness surrounding that film, it's a joy to, to check out. Also, I mentioned this in a earlier uh, show, but phase four, phase four, uh, the phase four episode of projection booth, w which interviewed Michael Murphy and Mayo Simon uh, who is the writer of the film and a great, a lot of great detail about Saul Bass and the making of the film and, and really, 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 really good. Uh, the projection booth, a great podcast, uh, just, just so many damn episodes. It's, it's difficult to, if you were gonna, if you were, if you never heard the projection booth to kind of dive into it, it would be daunting. I guess you'd start with your favorite movies. That's probably the best Go into their podcast feed, go into their website, start looking for your favorite movies, but, uh, check out, check out those episodes, check out Electric Line and Blue and, uh, check out phase four. Cause those are some, some dime. I mean, they do great. I mean, just a few years ago, they did a great episode on American Rickshaw, which didn't really even have any, any interviews, but, uh, I, I love the podcast. I think it's cool. I think it's great. It's inspiring to me to continue to make podcasts and sometimes inspires me to, to get up in the morning because there's a new there's a new projection booth to listen to. Uh, so I, I love the podcast and uh, a lot of me sending love to you, Mike White. Uh, I get it. I dig it. I love it. I don't I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I can't say enough about the projection booth. Uh, a more obscure podcast that I really enjoy listening to. I don't think they're making these anymore. It's a few years, a few years out. Adventures in VHS. This was a guy who's writing a book called Adventures in VHS, and he thought, well, I've got all these interviews, I've got all this material, let's make a podcast to kind of promote my book that I'm eventually going to publish. And I don't even think there is a website. I don't think, there, he used to have like adventuresinvhs.com or something. He did a lot of great episodes, but to me, the best uh, Adventures in VHS was, it was about Cliff Twemlow, the Mancunian man. This Cliff Twemlow was this guy in uh, UK who was a low budget independent shot on video filmmaker in the UK and he was uh he he was making these little action movies he was a former uh bouncer we call the tuxedo warrior and he actually they made a a big film he wrote a book on his life called tuxedo warrior and they made a big movie about it but it didn't star him and he was always kind of, he he always wanted, he played the villain in the film, but he wanted to play the, the lead role. So he did, but he did all these movies. He made a movie, a famous movie called GBH, Grievous Bodily Harm, and also a sequel to it. And he plays a underworld type guy. So many of his films, they're uh, difficult to find, difficult to, to procure. They're, they're starting to show up on YouTube, but these movies are crazy. They are great. They are just... You don't see UK shot on video stuff very frequently. It's very unique. And and this podcast, 
this Adventures in VHS podcast broke it all down. It was just a story of his life. It was it was a full-fledged documentary on Cliff Twemlow. That Cliff Twemlow episode, it's great. And the Rialto Report. Oh my God. The Re- I mean, the Rialto Report is a podcast devoted to vintage adult films, the golden age, they would say, of adult films in the 70s and 80s and then at the beginning of the 90s. And Ashley West, the guy who, who created uh, the Rialto Report, the Rialto Report, much like Adventures in VHS, this guy, Ashley West, had an idea of doing a documentary about vintage adult film, uh, almost like um, tell, trying to record the stories of the, the vintage adult filmmakers, the actors, the actresses, the directors, the, the filmmakers, the cast and crew. And in, in, in the process of doing that, he's like, I got so much material, let me, let me start a website and let me start a podcast. And the podcast is incredible. It's a podcast for, I think it's a podcast about adult film and I don't, that, that may turn you off to it. I think it turns off a lot of people because they think it's maybe something unseemly. But it, it's a podcast about adult film for people who don't necessarily like adult film. Ashley West, the creator of the podcast, will even tell you he's not he doesn't really watch this stuff. What what makes the 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 era of the golden age of adult film interesting is the people behind it, the stories, the human stories. A lot of times he does interviews with these people. Sometimes he tries to track them down. Sometimes they don't want to be uh, recorded and he'll he'll transcribe their interview and then read it. There's some great podcasts which don't even have any interviewees. It's just him reading a, a script. It's great. It's great stories. Human interest story. Human stories about people, about filmmakers, about people who did things right and wrong. And it's such a it's a it's a real involving show. And there's a lot of great episodes. But the episode I wanted to talk about is an episode. It's very difficult to find. It was not in their main feed for a while, and and just earlier this year they put it back up. But I found a link to the original version, which was it was a it was an interview with Alfred Soule, and it was about his film Deep Sleep. Alfred Soule was a uh, uh, filmmaker most well known for making that uh, the first movie with Brooke Shields, Alice Sweet Alice. But before that, he was he was coming out of Patterson, New Jersey, and he made this X-rated movie called Deep Sleep. He did it with the people from New York, Kim Pope. And it is a story of this guy who really wasn't a filmmaker, who just got together some money and got together some friends and friends and family and just made this little independent movie in his in a, in his in Patterson, New Jersey. And and it was like a real hometown effort. The fact that it was a an X-rated film was almost kind of like a side the point to him, but it got but the the title of the podcast, Deep Deep Trouble. It did got him in deep. It, it got him in deep, deep trouble. He got prosecuted for it, and he got into all kinds of nasty legal trouble. Maybe that's the reason why the podcast disappeared from the Rialto Report uh, RSS feed for a while. But they put it back. Uh, I, I have a link to the original one, and it seems like it's the same. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like they edited anything out. But in any case, that's a. I mean, <laughs> that's one of the best Rialto reports. It's, it's difficult to say the best Rialto report. There's so many Rialto reports, and there's not a lot right now. So you can go back. They have interviews with... Uh, they had an archival interview with Jamie Gillis. Uh, um, um, uh, Richard Bola, Robert Kerman of Cannibal Holocaust, and uh, all those fil- all those Italian horror films. He, he did an interview, uh, and uh, probably one of the last interviews he did before he died. There's a lot of memorial uh, interviews in the projection booth. A lot of people who are no longer there. And so Ashley West is doing doing really good work in preserving these people's stories. And it just has so many interesting stories with, with interesting people. The the stories of the of the lives and, and, and the stuff that some of these people did, the crazy stuff that they got involved in, it's so it's so unreal. The story of Pat Barrington, who wasn't really an X ray an X ray, but she was like in a softcore. She did all those Harry Novak films. And Pat Barrington, who whose uh, whose whose husband, whose first husband was it her first husband or second husband, was a serial killer. 
you know, the story of Pat Barrington is another wild story there. But I mean, there's just so many, there's so many interesting stories. And so the projection booth is definitely one to check out. I'm sure if you're listening to my podcast, you you gotta be checking out the projection booth. Come on. It's great. So I think I'm going to wrap it up. I thank you for listening to, to Tim Ormond uh, and all the, the juicy details about uh, uh, if footmen tire you. And uh, check it out in the, uh, the Nicholas Winding Refn website. It's a, it's a cool movie. And his, his later on Ormond films are, are pretty cool as well. But uh, until next time, see ya.